This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman. And I'm Min Dariwal. And welcome to The Loop. Today's episode, we're talking about sexual violence and assault. And if you or someone you know has been impacted by sexual violence, you can call Alberta's one line for support. Call or text 1-866-403-8000. And that number will be in the episode show notes. This is John Doe, Kyle Beach, the one-time Chicago Blackhawks prospect who says he was sexually assaulted by a coach in 2010. I am a survivor and I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not the only one. It was nearly two weeks ago when Kyle Beach came forward and identified himself in a TSN interview as the player who says he was sexually assaulted in the spring of 2010 by former Chicago Blackhawks video coach Brad Aldrich. After the interview, the Blackhawks released this statement. First, we would like to acknowledge and commend Kyle Beach's courage in coming forward. As an organization, the Chicago Blackhawks reiterate our deepest apologies to him for what he has gone through and for the organization's failure to promptly respond when he bravely brought this matter to light in 2010. You have seven or eight grown men, solid people, solid hockey people, talking about this situation, and they come up with this answer. The question I have is, what if it was your boy? What if it was your 20-year-old? Would your decision be different? Um, Yeah, I, I, I just don't understand it. If this horrible situation should serve any constructive purpose, it's to demonstrate that this will not be tolerated. On Hockey Night in Canada, victims advocates... That's just some of the reaction from NHL players, coaches, and even League Commissioner Gary Bettman to Kyle Beach's statement just a few weeks ago. Beach spoke out after an investigation revealed that even though the Chicago Blackhawks knew about the allegations of sexual assault against coach Brad Aldrich, he remained on the team until they won the Stanley Cup in 2010. Just three years after he left the NHL in 2013, Aldridge was charged and pled guilty to the sexual assault of a 16-year-old boy that we know as John Doe II. Min, I I think there have been so many stories and conversations in and about the hockey community in these Mm -hmm. last few weeks. What have you heard? Yeah, there have been so many conversations, uh, Claire, and definitely I think from a lot of people, the initial reaction was a feeling of disbelief, a a feeling of shock. Like, how could this have happened and how could this have remained quiet for 10 years? Yeah. I, I think so many people were shocked, myself being one of them, you know. And um, I, I really questioned my my passion for the game, my love for the game. I've loved this game since I was a kid. But, you know, that week when the story came out and when it broke, mm. I, I think there was a game on that night and, and I just did not even want to watch it. Really? Absolutely. And I've never felt that way. And, you know, I, I really felt it. I really felt this game and... and um, you know, I, I think a lot of people that have followed this game or worked in this game uh, really were kind of doing a lot of self-reflection and wondering how something like this could have happened. Yeah. Definitely. It, it, it's been kind of fascinating to watch. And I think this is why we wanted to talk about this yeah. on the show today, because these conversations are continuing and it's important that they do. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, as much as every incident is unique, there is a universal experience and culture around sexual assault. And later on in the show, we'll be speaking with the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton about this kind of cultural shift that's happening and the conversations that are hopefully moving things forward. Yeah. Um, because, you know, with each person that shares their own experience with sexual assault, we're learning a lot about the ways that sexual violence kind of mm. lives in every space. Um, 
But this story was so interesting because the hockey space. Right. It, it's striking, right? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think for the longest time, I, you know, I think there's this feeling that hockey is, has been slow to respond mm. to, to, to different things, anything that's controversial, right? We all hear about how co- hockey culture stresses, uh, you know, keeping problems of any sort inside the room, quote unquote. Right. Um, and it's all about team first, individual rights second. So, um, you know, I think the Kyle Beach story should have never been swept under the rug, but hockey culture kind of allows those kinds of things to to be kind of ignored and, yeah. and pushed aside, especially if it gets in the way of, in this case, winning, really. It's the way it's always been. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I thought, you know, we need to get some insight uh, from someone who has been inside a, a hockey dressing room and played at the NHL level. So uh, I spoke with former NHL enforcer George LaRock a couple of days ago. Now, George has played 13 years in hockey and countless many more, you know, growing up. Uh, he played in the NHL with the Edmonton Oilers, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and, of course, the Montreal Canadiens. So uh, this is the conversation that I had with him about uh, the Kyle Beach story and just about hockey culture in general. Well, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe that, uh, you know, like the culture of sport, the culture of trying to win the Stanley Cup was more important than taking care of your young player that suffered uh, an abuse. And I couldn't believe that the guy, uh, not only there was no consequences, but, you know, he celebrated the cup with the team. And then when he left the team, they give him a reference so he could go coach in college and do the same thing to another 16-year-old kid. And, you know, I, that kid, Cal, suffered for 10 years. He didn't say anything. And he, he went into drugs, depression, and because of all that, because people didn't believe him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's better too late than never, but I'm glad that things got brought to light. You know, things that happened in the past now getting punished because uh, all those tragic events, all they all have to be brought to light and people have to pay consequence for it. How, how do you feel about how the Hawks handled this? I mean, this is something that they kept quiet for a decade. They won three cups during that time, right? And even to this day, there are players who are adamant and, and even team officials who, who feel or say that they never knew that anything like this was happening. Well, you know, I'm glad that the CEO did what he did because he, the first thing that he did when he found out about it, he fired everyone that was part of the management in 2010. So this is sending a big signal saying that, you know, we have to do better and we will do better. Uh, it tells you about, you know, how now, you know, those behaviors that were accepted before that was hitting before in the world of sport will no longer be, which is good because, you know, sport shouldn't be able to, to hide and, and have a free pass to do whatever they want, uh, whether it's illegal or not. You know, we have to be held to the same standard as every human being on this planet. And I think in today's era, with everything that, that's been happening, I think this is what we're going to see from now on. Uh, I mean, this is a pretty big hit for the NHL, right? I mean, even uh, Gary Bedman has been criticized for how he's responded, you know, responding more as a lawyer as opposed to a commissioner and showing empathy. Uh, it seems like the NHL is slow to change, right? I mean, we've only recently seen them address issues around diversity and racism, uh, LGBTQ players and, and things like that. And why do you suppose the NHL is so slow to change and, and to accepting that some of this stuff is happening and that, you know, maybe the hockey culture does need to change? To me, it's so easy to say that when you think about it, but if you look at all the stuff that has been happening at the same time in the NHL, you look at that and you're like, 
oh man, like this is so many different case, big case that is taking a lot of attention. Like you in the year of COVID that the NHL have to deal with that. And then there's a Cal Beach thing that happened. And then there's a Bulgarian thing that happened. Uh, there's so many cases that happens that it's tough. I wouldn't want to be in their spots right now because they have a season to deal with, the COVID to deal with, the Olympics to deal with, the bargaining agreement to deal with. And now there's all these things that are coming to light. You have a commissioner that has to deal with a million problems at once, and he's getting criticized by, because of how he's dealing with it. Man, I think that we have to criticize more the people that created this problem. But, man, it's like there's so many things. Every week you're wondering what else is coming up, and they have their hands full with everything right now. Uh, stuff that is happening is major stuff, too. And, you know, how do you deal with it? You know, and when you say he's dealing like a lawyer, well, you know, the NHL, just like any other business, uh, when incident like this happened, you got to be careful how you handle it, how you say things. You know, it is now. Lawyers are so good. You make one mistake and you, your name is thrown back in there. So that's why, you know, it's so easy to criticize. But if we were in this position, I don't know if we would do any better. Uh, it seems to me as though, like, maybe the NHL is going through a, a shift of its hockey culture. I mean, we hear about this hockey culture a lot. I mean, you're a former player. You've experienced it. And, and you know, things that happened back when you played, if it happened nowadays, there, there would be no way it would be accepted. But it seems as though the NHL hockey culture is, is kind of going through a, a bit of flux here, right? It's changing. And maybe this is kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah, no, it, it is changing. Back then... Back in my time, and even before my time, I remember when I played hockey with former players, and they tell me about how, you know, guys, it was common if you if they're driving drunk or, uh, you know, if they get stopped by a police officer, they would drive them home and give them a pass. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, car accidents, many different things that has happened. Police would work with the team to cover them with about anything that's happened. You know, it was like that back then. Now it's the opposite, it, which is fine. Because athletes should be held to the same standard as everyone, everyone, everybody else. You know, nobody is bigger than anyone, and we're all equal. We're all human beings in this planet. I, I know some former players obviously have spoke out about this, right? I mean, Brett, Brent Sopel, uh, Theo Fleury, of course. He is uh, a survivor of sexual abuse himself. I mean, even a former teammate of yours, I think Taylor Hall, said that, uh, you know, what happened to Kyle Beach is bigger than hockey. You know, it's bigger than winning. It has to come before winning and that there has to be an end to, you know, any of the secrecy that kind of exists in the NHL. Um, how do you feel about those comments? No, it's, it's true. And, you know, I'm glad that we're talking about it, but it's tough about 10 years ago. But today, mm -hmm. hockey has changed so much that they know. Now, your behavior, the dinosaur behavior that many, uh, uh, you know, people in the staff, like GM, coach, or whatever, um, the way they behaved back then, they have to change. Like, back then, you could get away with murder and, and figure of speech in terms yeah. of how you talk to people, how you treated with people the way you were, but not anymore. If you can't adapt in a new society of today of respect, you're going to be cast out. And that's the way it should be. Because as society evolves, we evolve as a species, as a human being, as a person, and in sport, uh, like, all, like, Bosses, president, is gonna have, they're going to be held to the same standard. And uh, if you want to stay in this league in a position of power and, and hiring and doing all that stuff, well, 
you're going to have to do it the right way because uh, now if you if you do something stupid, it'll be brought to light and you're going to have to step down. Right. And I, I know, you know, going back to the Cal Beach uh, incident, you know, people ask how could something like this have happened, you know, an assistant coach, uh, you know, being able to manipulate a young prospect like this. But to me it seems like that dynamic exists, uh, that, that power struggle might uh, exist, uh, you know, uh, in an, on an NHL team, right? Because really you have a, a player's uh, future in your hands to a certain extent, don't you? Well, the thing is, it's not just with the NHL, but we hear this in all level, like even in minor hockey everywhere. The thing with people that I don't know if they could understand this because you're like, man, he's a man. How can this happen? When you want to play in the NHL, you should dream to play in the NHL. You're a kid again. You're a kid. You want to get there. You want to make it. And you do whatever it takes to be there. And sometimes whatever it takes, you might do something that you don't want to do by someone that is in the position of power because you want to get to that dream so much that you can't think. You're blind about, about, you're blind after, about everything that is happening. You know, young kids or players, professional athletes, that, that they're talking to someone that is in the position of putting or getting their dream to come true. And, uh, you know, and, and, and it's sad because you never want to hear anything like this, but the struggle to make it to the NHL, like the percentage, how low it is and how tough right. it is and all the competition is and everything is and stuff. Well, that's why people in positional power have to be punished because they're using an illegal way to do something that shouldn't be done. I know with the NHL, I mean, there's, over the years, there's been a lot of criticism about players not speaking out or supporting other players uh, because of that culture of team first and, and not individual first. But slowly we're, we're seeing that change. You know, I know in Edmonton last summer uh, or last spring in the playoffs, uh, Ethan Bear received a lot of racist comments online. And there's a lot of criticism that, you know, his teammates didn't stand up for him. But eventually, you know, Connor McDavid spoke out and put out a statement, uh, you know, with the Kyle Beach story, uh, as uncomfortable as I think it is for a number of players. Despite that, a lot of them still made comments and supported him publicly. That that's a major shift in the NHL, I would think. Uh, would you agree? Because players are now supporting each other, and uh, when they see something wrong done, they they, they do speak out. Yeah, no, no, I I, I agree, and uh, that's the way it, that's the way it should be. And now people they know that and stuff. It's so important to show that uh, you know they're supporting, like like, and, and it's awesome because that's what I'm talking about when we talk about a step in the right direction. Is this way, you know, mm-hmm. the way that people are like more respectful, like they're joining others, like to, to give strength because, you know, it's more powerful. Back then, I remember we suffered in silence, mm. but now with, with people joining your cause and speaking about what's going on, it's awesome because uh, it makes you feel way better. As much as there are different communities now talking about sexual assault, the conversation, I mean, it's not really new, right? Mm-hmm. The phrase Me Too broke big online. That was back in 2017 and, and started a really big discussion about the different kinds of sexual violence and all the nuance, I think, that the different instances carry. 
Um, so to dig into it a little bit more and about what the case of Kyle Beach and John Doe 2 can tell us about male sexual assault, I wanted to reach out to SACE, the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton. And I ended up speaking with Mary Jane James, uh, the CEO, and Jeremiah Levine, a public educator who runs a group that's called Wise Guys, which I hadn't heard of before, man. Had you? Yeah, I, I haven't heard of uh, Wise Guys. Yeah, it's really cool, actually, because um, it is this healthy relationships program. Okay. So Jeremiah runs it in schools. It's geared towards boys and masculine youth in their teens. Excellent. Um, which is kind of a really important age to talk about things like reducing sexual and dating violence, improving mental health, you know, talking about um, homophobic attitudes and how mm-hmm. to get away with that ideas. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's basically a safe space yeah. where once a week a group can come together and kind of tease apart masculinity and a lot of the talk that comes with gender norms. And I don't think I remember having these conversations yeah, in school at all. I certainly, uh, I mean, I remember when I was in grade six, seven, eight, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, having different feelings and you're going through puberty and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I think of my own son right now in grade seven. Yeah. So, so for sure, those are, are things that uh, now... Mm-hmm. You can talk about, and it's okay to talk about. And I think this will make a huge impact for these Definitely. Uh, kids and boys who are that age, because that is when you form those ideas and those beliefs and think that what you're hearing or what everybody else is saying to you is nor- is normal, is the norm. Yeah. But but in a lot of cases, it isn't. So I think that's a great program. Yeah, and it was really interesting to talk to, to Jeremiah more about the program, um, specifically because he's having these conversations all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started off by kind of asking him what he hears when he talks about consent and sexual violence. So when it comes to some of the stuff that's going to pop up in conversation, it can be a really interesting mixed bag of things that these boys and masculine youth are going to be sharing with me in these conversations. There's going to be a lot of the myths around sexual violence that, you know, these boys have heard from their older brothers or their cousins or their parents or guardians or even from other teachers or especially from other people online or some of the social media that they might be consuming. So I'm starting to see that along with these myths and along with these things that like really contribute to that rape culture, Some of these boys have really amazing things to say about consent already. On my end, it feels like a lot of the young people that I work with are really trying to navigate the often confusing conversation that's happening in our society around this. Um, I mean, Mary Jane, looking at that idea of a shift, have you seen a shift in how we're talking about sexual violence, especially as it relates to men? Oh, most definitely we have. We've known at SACE for a very long time that in order to combat the prevalence of this very serious issue of sexual violence, that we have to engage men and boys in the discussion. And we have to engage uh, boys at a much younger age than calm class in grade 12. The horse has kind of left the barn by that time. So this Wise Guys program is the only one of its kind in Edmonton to, you know, sort of break down the myths and stereotypes of who is affected by sexual violence and how they're affected. And I think it's much I won't say easier, but it's much more palatable, perhaps, Mm. for people to understand how women and girls or or folks who identify as women and girls can be, you know, can be sexually violated. But it was a bigger stretch for a lot of people to understand, perhaps not for boys, but for men. Statistics gathered confirmed 
and that about one in three men and boys are impacted by sexual violence at some point in their lifetime. So for men and boys, uh, you know, we know how difficult it is for women and girls to come forward, to feel supported, to feel believed. But that whole um, issue of having the, the comfort and the confidence to tell someone if you're a man or a boy is compounded probably a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And we want it to come out from under whatever blankets it's it's hiding in and and make it known uh, that this is an issue and that we are here to help. And speaking of make it known, right? I mean, I think this news particularly has sparked this conversation in a way that I've personally never seen it before of sexual assault in the NHL. Mary Jane, what was your reaction when um, these news stories first started coming out about Kyle Beach? Well, uh, like everyone else, I was horribly um, saddened by Mm -hmm. it and disappointed but not necessarily surprised. Hmm. Uh, To be quite frank, the reason it garnered so much attention was because it was coming out of a pro sports team, which for many, many, many decades are organizations that have been idols, looked up to, respected. So when this came to light, it was basically buried under the rug for 10 years. And although they stepped up both the NHL and the team and everyone involved at that management level and acknowledge the harm that was done. There are a lot of people out there suffering in silence who do not have the privilege that Kyle Beach has and the fame, if you will, as as being a, a top level hockey player or the support to come forward. Therefore, yes, Thank you, NHL, for doing the right thing finally. But we have to know that there is a whole schwack load of people out there who do not have anything close to that support and will never feel strong or supported enough to come forward. And those stories are still buried under the proverbial rug. You know, whenever there's something like this that blows up, there's always at least one lesson to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And I think the lesson here has been, among other things, that, yep, it can happen to an NHL hockey player too. Yeah. Jeremiah, I want to get your perspective too, because it's not just a high-profile hockey player. It's it's an athlete who's this bastion of, like, masculinity and... I don't know. Is there significance to the fact that we are seeing these hyper-masculine male athletes coming forward and sharing their own experiences? What does that mean? I think I think it is significant for someone who does fulfill that role in our society, like a pro hockey player who many people, especially many men and masculine folk, might look up to, as you were saying, as a bastion of masculinity, let's say, uh, to open up about their experiences of sexual violence. I think that can be really significant in the conversation that's been happening over the last few years around sexual violence and masculinity. I think that there can be a bit of confusion around that conversation. When we're talking about these cases of men who have experienced sexual assault, some of these conventional masculine traits that are kind of these stereotypes in our society, like being strong, tough, able to defend yourself, being powerful and in control, being really sexual. And like, these are stereotypes that are first off, not true. They're not accurate to the like 
very diverse, full human experiences that men and masculine people have, but they also get in the way for men who are trying to disclose their experiences of sexual violence, who are trying to heal without being blamed for what someone else did to them. So those conventional masculine traits, they, they get in the way of men who want to heal or trying to heal from their experiences. When we keep telling boys and men and masculine people that they need to be powerful and in control, they need to be competent, they need to be good at what they're doing, this can really send the question that you should not ask questions, ever. And that can find its way into something like sexual activities. It feels like they're admitting that they don't know what they're doing if they ask a question. Yeah. Or it feels like they're all of a sudden not being manly enough. Our society has a lot of victim blaming in it. And victim blaming means that someone who's been harmed by sexual violence is blamed for the violence that they experienced, which doesn't make sense. It's hard to talk about it with someone if... We're always afraid that at any turn, at any corner, someone might start blaming us for what someone else did to us, right? This can take on a really gendered aspect. Someone might say, well, why didn't he just fight them off? Can't, can't a real man defend himself? Mm. When we see a story like this, where Kyle Beach, John Doe 2 are finding that courage, uh, finding that wherewithal to disclose their experience and, and having that show up in the public, I feel that that is significant. I feel like that might be really paving the way for more men and more boys to also find that courage and that wherewithal to bring up their experiences and, and hopefully they won't experience that victim blaming. You know, I think it's so interesting because this story has started so many conversations with um, my guy friends who I've never talked to about sexual assault or violence. That has never been a point of conversation. And we're having that conversation now. And I think that I'm, I'm hearing it happen in different circles that I maybe would never have heard or thought of it as before. Uh, Jeremiah, are you seeing this story kind of echoed in some of the conversations you're having with young men and in these groups? Not yet. Yeah. I imagine that in the coming weeks, uh, as I, you know, I'm really getting things rolling with my Wise Guys program and this news is uh, becoming more widespread. I imagine it is going to start coming up. There's a lot of opportunity and a lot of different news stories that do find their way into the classroom and really do help spark that conversation. Yeah. Can, can I ask, I mean, these are tough conversations to be having, especially when you're speaking to young folks who are still learning so much. Does that take a toll at all? Something that I really want to say around this topic, which unfortunately does not answer your question, but I will answer your question. Okay. Uh, something that I do want to say is that when we're looking at these, the numbers, when we're looking at the reality of sexual violence in our communities, as we said earlier, one in three men in Alberta have experienced sexual violence. Often they experience it as boys. So when I'm doing the Wise Guys program, this is not just the number. Boys that I'm working with, some of them have experienced sexual violence, whether they disclose that or not, or in the future they will after the Wise Guys program, or maybe even during the year. The boys and youth that I'm working with, these are things that they experience. These are things that show up in the classroom. When you ask me about the toll that it takes, the first thing I thought about was the toll that it might take on the youth that I work with, um, because they're hearing these things and they're trying to make sense of the experiences that they've had, uh, navigate through really complicated social situations and social hierarchies that they encounter in school, on their teams, online, in, in their families, and try to find a way forward. As far as whether it takes a toll on me, yeah, sometimes it does. Absolutely. I think that 
<laughs> maybe to speak, maybe it's weird for me to speak on the behalf of like people that get involved in this kind of work. But I think most of us get involved in this kind of work because it hurts because we want this violence to stop. So yeah, it can be tough. Something really particular to the wise guys program is that I do a lot of journaling and I don't like journaling. I've never been the kind of guy that wants to write down his thoughts in a book, but that's what I was trained to do. So I started doing it. This helps me do a better job, kind of like better tabs and like processing some of the really interesting, fascinating things um, that might be showing up in the classroom when I do this work. And it also helps me process my own emotions around it. Uh, there's a part of me that is really often thinking about the experiences that I had and that my friends had when we were 14. That can be a really interesting starting point for introspection to think about the ways that I was raised and everything that I wish someone told me when I was that age. So a lot of my reflection that I have when I am trying to journal, when I'm trying to uh, kind of process those emotions, and if it's taking a toll on me, process that toll that it's taking on me is thinking about the ways that, I'm, that I might have benefited from that type of education when I was young. There can be a lot of emotions tied up in that. After something like this breaks so widely, how do we move the conversation forward? What should people be talking about? One really interesting quote that I came across in the Me Too movement several years ago. Okay, I don't remember the quote word for word, but if we only think about sexual violence as something that's perpetrated by individuals, we're always going to be shocked. We're going to continue to be shocked, surprised, and maybe even just like plain weirded out when we hear about more high profile individuals or maybe even less high profile individuals, maybe like low profile individuals in our life or in our social circles uh, who are causing this harm. We're always going to be surprised. We're always going to be shocked. But if we can move from this individual lens to a more systemic lens, thinking about these hierarchies of power and inequality in our society, then it's going to start making a bit more sense. We're not going to be in this constant state of shock by being like, wow, I, I didn't know that individual was capable of that. Instead, we can move to this way of thinking where we're like, well, we see that this institution has some real unequal power dynamics. This creates the conditions for sexual violence and other types of abuse to be so much more likely. This gives permission for people in power to cause these sorts of harm. I think we shift the conversation, uh, we can start making some progress. It's, it's really very simple. When it comes to supporting someone who discloses to you, it's really important that our response be supportive, that the person realizes that you believe them and that you empower them to do what is best for them in terms of next steps. If we are aware of or are witnessing inappropriate behavior taking place, either anecdotally or personally witnessing it, you are part of the problem if you just do nothing. There's so many myths and stereotypes out there about who commits sexual violence and who is a survivor of sexual violence. This issue is not about sex or sexual pleasure. It's power dynamics. It's power and control and impo most importantly, entitlement. So that happens all the time, whether it's between a, a teacher and a pupil, a, a person of faith and, 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 and someone in the congregation. 
or, or a parent or family member and child. Preventing sexual violence against anyone, including men and boys and people of all gender, it requires a cultural shift. It requires a deep dive into the norms and stereotypes that have been accepted as reality for a very long time. We need everybody to understand, to shift their thinking, to start believing that sexual violence really does not have to have a place in our world. The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton, and our team is Min Dariwal, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, Christina Silva, and James Evans. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnyman. Thank you so much for listening this week. Of course, there's so much more to know and to find out out there. So get into the loop with us every Friday if you can. You can leave us a rating or a review wherever you download the show. Or if you want to get in touch, we have an email, theloop at cbc.ca. You can use the hashtag theloopcbc on social media or reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Min Dariwal. And Claire, you are at? Nami Knob. So unique. <laughs> and of course, follow the show on CBC Listen or your favorite podcasting app. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.